So what John is saying in this letter, what's still true 2,000 years later is that every person in this room, everybody here today, if you're saying that Jesus is your savior, you've entrusted him on some level, right, for your salvation. If you're saying I'm a Christian, I, I believe in Jesus, then you must also serve him as Lord of your life. On some level, he's saying many people, many of you, you guys want the glory of heaven, but you don't want the burden of obedience, but you can't have one without the other. If you want the power of the resurrection, as Paul said, you have to want the suffering and the death that preceded. We all want to have the resurrection power. We all want the rewards of heaven, but do we want the day-to-day, one foot in front of the other, grinding through life sometimes that way, obedience? Uh, do we? Ha- I don't know. By maybe a show of hands or just an acknowledgement, uh, just do we have any people in here that are uh, like history buffs or consider themselves like fans of history? And it can be in whatever. It could be sports history. It can be uh, you know history of different wars. It could be whatever you're into. Um, I consider myself a, a history guy. Um, maybe not uh, in, in some of the traditional senses. Uh, definitely from a uh, biography standpoint. So I uh, love biographies of people that have lived and existed in history. Uh, three of my, uh, I guess you'd call them like heroes uh, in terms of just guys that I've been like, ad- I've admired throughout history. Ernest Shackleton, if you've ever heard of him, a British explorer. Uh, Meriwether Lewis of the famous Lewis and Clark expedition, and then uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I've read uh, a lot uh, and watched a lot on those three and others as well. But I also, uh, from a historical standpoint, I love uh, the cultural anthropology side of history. So if you study uh, the Bible uh, in depth, uh, obviously, which I've done for the past 25 years, uh, you kind of can't help, if you're studying it faithfully anyway, but become a bit of a cultural, cultural anthropologist. Uh, You almost have to because what you're navigating throughout these 66 books uh, in many different styles is you're navigating thousands of years of history throughout many different cultures. Now, it is ethnocentric in the Old Testament sense, meaning that it's focused on one culture. This is the nation of Israel. But if you read their story, you'll understand that they were taken into captivity into many different cultures, and they experienced many series of ups and downs, and they were nomadic and displaced and all these different things that were going on. And you discover that, and it's not until you get to different portions of the New Testament that you even see any instruction towards people outside of the nation of Israel. And then you're trying to navigate what was going on there. Like, what was really happening when, let's say, the Apostle Paul wrote that? What was the cultural significance of that, or what were the cultural conditions going on there? And it's important that we're faithful to that type of stuff. But one thing you'll learn, and those of you that raised your hand will, I think, be able to acknowledge this, is if if you study history, and you try to study it really with um, just kind of like a bird's-eye view and an open mind, what you will learn is that people— are people pretty much throughout history. Now, there are people that are more wicked than others. There are people that do a little bit better things than others. There are all kinds of ins and outs, but for the most part, people are people, and they've always been people. Exhibit A would be we had the first family, Adam and Eve, and how long was it before we have major issues? One brother killed the other brother, from the first family. 
It's a brother murdering a brother for what seemed to be, not that there's ever a great excuse for that, but relatively, ridiculously insignificant reasons, right? And there are people nowadays, and I, and I understand this, I disagree with it, but I understand that'll say, well, you know, it's 2021, this world is just going to hell in a handbasket, you know? It's just, it's just worse than it's ever been. Uh, you know, I remember the good old days and name whatever generation that you think the good old days were. Uh, and it's like, I remember the good old days, but that's not really a, it's not really a faithful understanding of history. The reality is that from the dawn of marked time, okay, from Adam and Eve until 2021, history in terms of people has been on a continuum, right? There have been cultures that were far more wicked than our culture. There have been things that were unimaginable throughout history. Now, there have been other cultures that in some ways maybe were better, but every culture throughout history has had its major, major issues. People have always been people. People have done horrific things. People have done good things. And it's just gone like that throughout. Now, I understand, again, that there are right now in this world, there are horrendously oppressive regimes. There are horrible civil wars. There are all kinds of massive tragedies going on. But on the other side, there are also record low mortality rates. There's all kinds of other things. So again, there's always good and bad. My favorite author, Annie Dillard, who I quote all the time, she says, there has never been a generation that lived well. There's never been a generation that lived well. And that pretty much sums it up right? I mentioned that, all of that, because that's what I want you to think of when we approach uh, the verses we're going to tackle today here in just a minute in this series that we're in, Love and Light, focused on 1 John. I want you to think of it that way because John is writing to a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. We have to understand the culture that he's writing to, the reasons for his writing. If we don't understand that, we don't frame it the same way. It's harder for us to grasp it. But what John, the reasons for John's writing are incredibly relevant to us today, as they have been, again, for every generation. But they're incredibly relevant for us today. John is writing, and I talked about this before when I introed the series. This is less of a letter, and it's more of a poetic sermon. In John's classic style, if you know anything about him, he was one of the notorious sons of thunder, right? That Jesus gave them that nickname. He was somewhat brash. He was in Jesus's inner circle. So he had special access to Jesus that nobody, that aside from uh, Peter, James, and John, nobody else had. So he knew things and had seen things and heard things that maybe the others hadn't. But he's a straightforward guy. And he's writing this because early on, again, the church has barely been born, Okay. It's not all that old, and already there are massive issues within the church. Again, right? Sometimes we romanticize the early church, and there are things about the early church that we absolutely need to recapture. There are things about the early church that we have lost that need to be reclaimed. But there are a lot of things about the early church that were completely ridiculous and terrible as well, and we don't want to do those things. But he's writing to address this stuff just as one of his contemporaries uh, on some level, the Apostle Paul was doing. So, in fact, to, just to use that as a reference, if you've read the book of Galatians, uh, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, there's actually a, a spot where he says, and the most of your translations will say something like this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Uh, who has turned you away from the truth that you received? And he's talking about doctrinally. How could you receive this truth of who Jesus is and the freedom and the grace and the things he offers that Nick kind of alluded to in his communion thought? How could you take all that and how could you go back to the slavery of the law and to all these dead commands and dead ways of living? You foolish Galatians. It's a very, uh, I don't know, it's a very nice translation because if you read it in the Greek, uh, what he actually says in the Greek word is, you idiots of Galatia. Is you, you, you idiots of Galatia. Basically, this is the, now my paraphrase, how could you be so stupid, right? And we're like, we, we in 2021, right, that's not politically correct language. We recoil at that, right? But he's taken this pretty seriously. It's his church, one of the ones that he helped found, and he's pretty frustrated, because he's labored and done all this work to get this church doctrinally to understand the freedom they have and all the beauty of the kingdom, and now they're returning to the slavery, right? And that's Paul. Now we have John writing this sermon to a church, and it was a circular letter, which meant that it wasn't necessarily written to anybody specific. We think, we generally know we think where it was sent originally, but the idea was that it would be passed from church to church to church to church, so that everybody was getting in on it, so everybody understood what was going on, and they were hearing from this guy, pretty important guy, Jesus' inner circle, towards the end of his life about what, was, what he wanted to talk to them about, what he thought was important. What he's dealing with specifically in this letter is uh, people who are taking the gospel, and they're twisting it, and they're turning it, and they're making it uh, whatever they want to make it, and they're starting to use it to justify things, and they're just getting all out of whack, and they're starting to behave uh, in very pagan ways, but they're still claiming to be Christians, and there's all this confusion about, well, wait a second, this guy says he's a Christian, but like he's doing this, and like, oh, okay, so can I do that too? And as you might imagine, that's not a great thing, right? Because that's how people begin to get led astray, because again, people are people, and we can easily be led astray. And so John's writing this sort of definitive statement and saying, all right, okay, guys, <laughs> guys, like, don't be stupid. And you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm not kidding, you're going to see that here in a second, this, this language that he's using. Like, all right, this is what the story is. This is what we've heard. <laughs> this is what we've seen with our own eyes. Let me remind you, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let's dive in. First John 2, as we continue on in this series, Love and Light, week 3. First John 2, verses 3 through 11. I'm going to read all these, then we're going to kind of break it down. So again, he's writing, keep this in mind, the cultural stuff in mind. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, and again, that word know, we've talked about this many times, is, in the, is uh, very in the intimate sense, deep knowing. I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word... Love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Again, very straightforward. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light 
but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. What I love about this text is that you don't have to be a Bible scholar to get what John is saying. It's incredibly simple. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commands. If you say you love him, but you don't keep his commands, you're a liar. If you want to know if you're a true Christian, here's how you can know. Are you living like Jesus? Pretty easy, right? With that being said, you know, though these statements appear pretty straightforward, there's layer upon layer upon layer underneath them. So here's the first kind of big statement of the morning. It'll be here on the screen. 2,000 years of Christian history has given us both beautiful revelations of the cruciform life, that is the imitation of Christ or living like Jesus, and it has also served to fog over our rearview mirrors to the point that many self-identified Christians have little to no idea what the cruciform life truly looks like. Or if we do know, we have little to no conviction to truly pursue it. Did I say that was a kind of a big statement? That last sentence, or if we do know, we have little to no conviction to truly pursue it. Let me elaborate on that just a bit by stating it another way. This again will be on the screen. Many people want the glory of heaven without the burden of obedience here on earth. They want the benefit of what Jesus did without the obligation to live as he lived. Again, John is very clear. And again, remember the context and the situation and the culture into which John is writing. He's writing to a bunch of people who want to take on the name of Jesus, who want to identify with Jesus, who want to receive the rewards that they believe Jesus offers. But they basically have found ways around things, or so they think. And they've given themselves license to behave sort of however they want, and they've justified it in all kinds of different ways. And They've kind of dragged others along with them because you know how that works. They want to feel better about what they're doing, so they bring some other people with it. But he's writing into this context. On some level, he's saying, many people, many of you, you guys want the glory of heaven, but you don't want the burden of obedience, but you can't have one without the other. If you want the power of the resurrection, as Paul said, you have to want the suffering and the death that precede it. We all want to have the resurrection power. We all want the rewards of heaven, but do we want the day-to-day, one foot in front of the other, grinding through life sometimes that way, obedience? Can we do that when we don't feel like it? 1 John 2.8, so it's in the middle of this text, is where I kind of want to spend our time today. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. It's one of those ones that if you're just reading through, you might just kind of pass it up and not realize what that's saying. Kind of a big statement. Whoever claims to live in him, whoever identifies as a Christian, 
whoever claims to receive life from him and that they're going to heaven or whatever, however you want to frame that, whoever takes on the name of Jesus, they must live as Jesus did. In the Greek, I have that, uh, the word must, um, you know, emboldened and in all caps there. That word in the Greek is translated as uh, ought, like our word for ought to. Whoever claims to live in him ought to live as Jesus did. But the word, that word that we translate ought, in the Greek actually has, it's specifically used uh, when someone had a debt or a responsibility to someone. So they owed somebody something. Whoever claims to live in him has a debt, has a responsibility to live as he did. Whoever claims to receive life from him has to be willing to embrace the death that he calls us to. As Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So what John is saying in this letter, what's still true 2,000 years later, is that every person in this room, everybody here today, If you're saying that Jesus is your Savior, you've entrusted him on some level, right, for your salvation. And again, there's so many different things we can talk about with that that I don't have time for today. But if you're saying I'm a Christian, I I believe in Jesus, then you must also serve him as Lord of your life. There is no in-between. There is no other option. So some people talk about, like, you know, being a disciple of Jesus. Well, you, you either are a disciple or you're not a disciple. Like, there's not really an in-between. You're either coming after him or you're not, right? You can claim that you have some allegiance to him or have some sort of like, uh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Jesus fan, so to speak. But if that's true, you really are a Christian, you're going to Seek to live as he did. You have a debt or responsibility to that. You will start to follow in his footsteps, which is what a disciple literally did. Back in the day, they literally trailed behind their rabbi and literally walked in his steps physically. And obviously that plays out too in how they were to live their lives. Every person in this room who names Jesus as their savior must also serve him as their Lord. Romans 12, 1, one of, probably my favorite text in the entirety of of the Bible, one and two, but I'm just going to read one this morning. Therefore, I urge you, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, I urge you, that that word right there is like this deep level of, like, I implore you, like, I, I, it's like a super strong, I urge you, right? It's like, I have the urge to eat this ice cream, like, it's super strong, right? Like that, you know? I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so in view of what he's done for you, this is echoing what John's writing, right? The debt and responsibility. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you understand the sacrificial system? They would place something on the altar and the fire would consume it. So what he's saying is put your body, put all of who you are on the altar. Give that to God, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Other translations, if you guys are looking right now on your phones or your physical Bibles, your translations may say, I urge you to do this. This is your reasonable service. This is your reasonable service. It's our reasonable service to give him everything. Right? The definition of reasonable is fair and sensible. This is not extreme. 
This is not over the top. This is not some radical Christianity, some Jesus freak thing, right? It's fair and sensible. Your reasonable service is to give him everything, right? We talked about this a lot in a series we did earlier this year called The Normal Christian Life, that oftentimes what used to be considered radical or extreme or on the fringes, right? Or I'm sorry, what used to be considered normal 2,000 years ago in the early church is now considered radical or extreme or on the fringes and how that's just not the way it's supposed to be. Another way of putting it is like what people consider extreme, we should just consider like, well, yeah, I mean, it's reasonable. It's, it's fair. I mean, in view of his mercy, like how could I possibly like live any other way? Like you, you get to that point in your mind and in your heart and in your life where you're like, I can't conceive of not putting my body on, uh, on the altar as a living sacrifice because he, he's done everything for me and he's given me you know, like Nick said, how many chances, right? He's not the God of second chances. He's the God of another chance, right? That was a great word, another and another and another and another. And if he's done that for me, like, well, why, how could I not do that? And it's kind of a big deal. But if we're going to do this, because this all sounds good in theory and, you know, but if we're going to do this, if we're going to, to live as Jesus lived, I think an important thing, we should probably know how he lived right? How did Jesus live? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. If the command, so to speak, or if the statement or if the marker of truth in the Christian life, as John puts it, is uh, if you claim to live in him, you must live as he did. Well, we should probably know how did Jesus live, okay? Kind of a, kind of a big deal. Now, this, on the surface, seems like a duh type of statement, but I've found in all these years of pastoring that it's not. I've found that, sadly, in many cases, oftentimes more than I would really like, people have really no clue of how Jesus lived. And this, this is going to sound somewhat bad, but please hear how I'm saying it. It's like a lot of people think they do have a clue, but I swear it's been more informed by Fox News than it has by the Bible. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's not an equal thing. Or it's been informed by some sort of proof texted, which is when you just extract a random verse and apply it in some way that it was never meant to be applied. It's been more informed by that than it has a holistic approach to the Gospels and then to seeing how the subsequent authors of the Gospels framed things and understanding the old, all that. It's like, we probably need to know how we live, but... We've been so, like like I said in that earlier statement, 2,000 years of Christian history has fogged up, you know, the rear view on some levels. I love what the um, South African Bible scholar Albert Nolan says in uh, his book, Jesus Before Christianity. Uh, He says, it's my belief that uh, every three years, I don't know why he chose three years, he just did. He said every three years, every, every Jesus follower should do their best to erase whatever they think they know about Jesus and start over again. Now, there's hyperbole there, right? Because you probably don't want to forget the whole, like, son of God, savior of the world, you know, type of thing. He's making this point, though, that we can so easily begin to read ourselves, right? Read how we want to live into the text, right? There's in, in, in Bible college, you learn about exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is when you actually are faithful to a text and you without you do your best to like hear what it's saying to you. Eisegesis is when you go to it and find what you want to find, right? 
We're great at eisegesis, less great at exegesis. But the idea, I think, is there, which is like just, okay, turn off all the nonsense, and why don't you just, why don't you just read the Gospels, and then to dig into the history of what was going on and become somewhat faithful to that. It's kind of an important thing because, again, if John says this is how you know and this is what you're supposed to do, we should probably know what we're supposed to do, right? So allow me to speak to that this morning in the next, you know, 20 minutes. Take care of all that for you. I can't possibly cover everything this morning, but I want to hit five key elements, and I'm going to try to move through them pretty quick of Jesus' life that we're specifically called to emulate. Now, these are things that it's, the Bible tells us Jesus did over and over and over and over again in some cases, and then these are also things that we're told to do specifically to emulate him. All right, now, there are, I mean, I'm going to go through five. I could probably find 50 things, right? But just take these five today. If you spend the rest of your life on these five, I think you'll end up in a pretty good spot, okay? So there's probably going to be something you're like, oh, you forgot about that. I didn't forget about it, I promise, but I just wanted to focus this morning on these five. So the first thing we know for this morning about Jesus is that Jesus emptied himself. So number one, Jesus emptied himself. You know, in, in a culture such as ours, and again, not the first culture in history like this, but in a culture where extreme narcissism has reached epidemic proportions, where you do you, right, is a common refrain used to actually encourage narcissism, and where self-actualization, some sort of mystical fulfillment of the self, is seen as the ultimate goal, Jesus, as usual, turns things upside down and expects his followers to do the same. There's a biblical term uh, for this, the, em the emptying that Jesus underwent, and it's called kenosis. I have a definition, a really base definition. It's very complex, and there have been books written about it, but in Christian theology, kenosis is the self-emptying of Jesus' own will and becoming entirely receptive to God's or to his Father's will. Now, there are multiple places where this is talked about in the New Testament, but Philippians 2, 3 through 8 is probably the most comprehensive and familiar place. And I say comprehensive on some level because not only does it address the kenosis of Jesus, it also address, addresses that we're supposed to model it. So let's check out these verses, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, giving them instructions on how to behave, you know. Again, these things may be relevant for us today. Do nothing. That in the Greek means nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That might make a good, like, bumper sticker. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So there's the correlation. And here we go with the kenosis. Who, being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing. Some translations will actually say he emptied himself, which is obviously what I'm using at this point. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Although he could have done all these things and clung to all these rights and taken advantage of all these things, and it was his right to do so, he chose, he intentionally put himself under. He intentionally, instead of a power over, embraced a power under. He took on the nature of a servant, not of a king. He chose to come that way. He chose to empty himself. Oh, and you're supposed to do the same. Submit yourself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Look to the interests of others. Paul famously speaks to sort of this idea. He really encapsulated it well in Galatians 2.20, a verse I'm sure most of you have heard where he says, you know, regarding his, his salvation, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And he's saying, forget about the whole like, you know, you do you thing or the me do me thing, because the me is dead. <laughs> that, there is no like you do you, because there is no me anymore, because I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer even live. But Christ lives in me. He's emptied himself and now Christ has inhabited him via the Holy Spirit. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This echoes so many of the verses I've already referred to in view of God's mercy. Paul says, he loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, I've been crucified with him. And again, coming back to a verse we have already used, Romans 12, 1, I just want to put it in a bit of a different context here. Again, therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, to give yourselves up. To have the same mindset as Christ, who offered his body, literally, right, as a sacrifice. And I love when the scriptures just, you know, there's so much power when you bring all this stuff together in its fullness. So the first thing that Jesus did that we're called to emulate is to empty ourselves. And I understand there's 9, 10, 25, whatever sermons I could preach on that alone, Right? I know you're thinking, like, well, what does that mean? And that stuff that, if you want to talk, let's talk about it. But the first thing that Jesus did that we're called is to, is to empty ourselves. Because we don't live anymore. Christ lives in us. If you're a Christian, if you claim to live in him, you'll live as he did. So the second thing that Jesus did is he didn't just empty himself, but he allowed himself to be filled up. Jesus was totally dependent upon the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was totally dependent upon the Father and the Holy Spirit. The idea of kenosis, again, it's a deep one, is that Jesus, who is God, when he comes down, right, the incarnation, and he takes on the nature of a servant, that he emptied himself of his divine rights, right, and many of his divine attributes in some ways. So he empties himself and he allows himself as a man to be dependent upon the Father and the Holy Spirit. Part of the reason for this is so that we could follow this. 
He's setting an example for us of what life in the fullness of the Spirit can actually look like. So he empties himself of all these things, and he allows himself to be filled up. There are people that think that Jesus was almost like a, like a fake type of man, right? And so there are extreme versions of this where people think that when Jesus was a baby, he never cried. Because crying is somehow like, you know, sinful or, or something. Or like he, and this is going to be hilarious, but like, you know, he never soiled a diaper when he was a baby. Right? Like, I don't know if that meant he was instantly potty trained or what, but like, there's just weird stuff. But it's like, no, 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 no. Like, he was a kid. He was a baby. We're told that he, he grew in wisdom and stature, right? And we don't have much about his childhood. We know, yeah, he was sharp, and at 12, he was in the temple teaching. But it's not until his baptism that we see him empowered for ministry. And he talks about this himself. But at his baptism, when he comes up out of the water, the Father's voice speaks, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And then from there, he goes out into the wilderness, but then returns, and the power of the Holy Spirit begins his ministry. And this is not a, this is not like a random Josh Goodman thing, this kenosis, this idea of emptying and him being dependent. This is a very biblical thing. So let's look at some texts here. Acts 10, 38. This is Luke writing, and he says, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Luke 4, 18 through 19, this is Jesus' like mission statement that he gives, and he specifically speaks to this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And one of the strongest verses that speaks to kenosis, this idea that Jesus, just all under his own power, all by himself, couldn't do much, is John 5, 19. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the Son, Jesus, can do nothing, What's that word again in the Greek? Right. Can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. The great uh, Bible scholar from Wheaton College says this, Gerald Hawthorne, he says this, to kind of sum this up. The Holy Spirit was the divine power by which Jesus overcame his human limitations such as being limited in knowledge and bound by physical space and human strength, rose above his human weakness and won out over his human mortality. Jesus needed the Father. He needed the Holy Spirit. He needed to be anointed. Why? Because he had emptied himself. But he allowed himself to be filled up to become obedient. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 31 quotes David writing, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Famous, right? Famous thing that he says on the cross. And part of what he's saying, even though he knows and he's been like spoken to by the Father through the Holy Spirit about, you know, and he predicted that he would rise again, there's still, he's, there's a human part of him that's 
not doing so well at the moment that he says this. And what he's saying is, Father, like, I believe your promises, what you've said right now, not feeling so good, but into my hands, I entrust myself. I entrust that what you've told me is going to happen. This is a, maybe it seems like a controversial statement. It shouldn't be, but Jesus couldn't raise himself from the dead. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. That's why we're told that we have the same spirit in us that raised Christ from the dead. The Holy Spirit, right? That's why he's committing his hands or himself into the Father's hands, trusting that the Spirit will raise him from the dead. And that's how we're supposed to live, is to be continually filled with the, within the presence of God, the Father, filled with the Holy Spirit, completely dependent upon them, understanding that we can do nothing on our own, right? Human effort accomplishes nothing, we're told. 100% dependent upon the Spirit. And this is good news, guys. It's good news because what that means is we can begin to live like Jesus lived. If he emptied himself and all the things that he did were done by his relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit, we have that available to us. That should make you excited, not depressed. Because you don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to grit your teeth and clench your fists and white knuckle it and try to overcome all these things all on your own. You've got unbelievable power available to you if you're willing to tap into it. But like John says, you kind of got to start to walk in it. So Jesus emptied himself and then he was allowed himself to be filled up. Number three, these last couple all kind of move through a little more quickly. But number three, Jesus was gentle and humble in heart. So he emptied himself. He allowed himself to be filled up by the, the Holy Spirit in relationship with the Father. And what that produced is a Jesus as a person, as a man who was humble and gentle and humble in heart. There's only one place in the entirety of the New Testament where Jesus describes what his heart is like. And it's in Matthew 11. 29, when he's talking about coming and finding rest, and he says, take my yoke upon you, take my way of life, my set of rules, and my way of life upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. There's only one place in the entire New Testament where he describes his heart, so we may want to pay attention to that. Of all the different choices he had, how to describe his heart, which obviously we understand what heart implies. He says he is gentle and humble. Throughout your day-to-day -day life, how's it going with those? How, how, how's it going with the gentle and the humble in heart? And again, this is not me. Don't hear, don't hear me saying all right, what I need you to do is tomorrow just start being more gentle. Start being more humble. Go ahead and give that a try. It's not what I'm saying. You do that, it won't work. What I am saying is, tell God, I'm, I want to be rid of myself. I want to empty myself out. Holy Spirit, come and fill me up. And I trust that when you do that, I will become more like you. I will become more gentle and humble and hard. It will naturally flow out of me. I won't have to effort it. Gentle, that's, that's a huge one. It's been a huge one for me personally. Gentle and humble in heart. Gentleness and humility, suffice it to say, 
do not fly in a cultural culture of me first, like the one that we live in. Gentleness and humility. And I'm not, what I'm not talking about, I just want to make a quick aside here, what I'm not talking about is allowing yourself to be a doormat and allowing yourself to be abused and allowing yourself to be run over and allowing yourself to be treated poorly in all kinds of horrendous different ways, right? I'm not talking about that. So if don't, don't go, oh, I need to be gentle and humble uh, in heart to my husband who calls me horrific names and treats me like a piece of garbage and I just need to, be, there's times where you, there's a gentleness and humility can look very different. It can look like something like saying, sorry, but that's, you're not gonna treat me like that and uh, because of, you know, and you're those reasons. So understand what I'm saying. I'm not ta- giving somebody here a license to just like lay down and let somebody just destroy them in ways that you can't. So Jesus was gentle and humble in heart so you're following this sort of progression here. He emptied himself. He's filled up with the Holy Spirit and has a relationship with the Father. That produces a gentle and humble heart. And that leads to this, number four. As we get kind of close here to the end, Jesus was a friend of sinners and embraced the poor and the marginalized. Luke 4, 18 through 19, which we read earlier just a minute ago. But let's read it in a different way. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he has anointed me. Why? Why did the Spirit of the Lord come and anoint Jesus specifically as he says it? Quoting Old Testament prophecy, he says, to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me, so again, he has sent me, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and there are many different types of prisoners, not just those behind bars. And recovery of sight for the blind, and there are many different kinds of blind besides just those who actually physically can't see. But that's certainly part of it. And to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was his mission. He was a friend of sinners, embraced the marginalized, the outcast. Matthew eleven eighteen 18 through 19 Jesus is talking to here to some Pharisees, and he's kind of just throwing their words back at him. And he's saying, guys, you, nothing, nothing pleases you. And he's talking about the, John the Baptist here, and he says, for John, the, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. John was a little crazy if you didn't know. The son of man, referring to himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, again, the worst of the worst, and sinners, Okay. So that's what they've been saying about him. How many of you know you don't get called a friend of somebody unless you spend significant time with them? Unless you're always in their company, unless you're around them a lot. So Jesus spent a lot of time with people of ill repute, people who were on the outside looking in, people who weren't good enough, who didn't feel good enough, who had shame and guilt and then were shamed and guilted by other people who were, thought they were in and all that stuff. Jesus embraced those people. He embraced those who didn't have enough. So the question is, are you a friend of these? If you are emptying yourself and being filled with the Spirit, you'll produce gentleness and humility in the way that Jesus did, and it will naturally lead you, the humility part especially, will lead you to a place where you embrace these people and welcome them in. And here's a massive key distinction. Massive, that's sometimes overlooked and often just flat out missed. 
Are you a friend to these people? A friend, not in a power over way, right? Like I have all this and you have nothing. So, and like, let me come down because you're lesser and I'll give you this thing and you should be so thankful for it. And if you don't respond the way that I think you should, I'm gonna stop or, or whatever. But are you a friend, right? Do you see yourself in them and vice versa? Are you a friend? Are you sharing a meal? Or are they at your table? Or are you kind of doing some perfunctory stuff while holding them at arm's length? There's a massive difference there. Because you can do a whole bunch of stuff that you think is good, but really it's all about you on some level and, and may even help them a little bit. But if you don't see yourself as equal to them, you've missed the boat. You've missed the boat. I want to just say this as a, for a second. I have, this, this is a cool thing that a lot of you guys don't get to see, but uh, Pastor Jordan and I do, but is our Wednesday uh, food distribution, you know, that we're able to do. We've been doing for over a year. There's so much great stuff that goes on, but I will say that there are people here among our volunteers who do a great job of, of keeping it like this and not like this. There are people from the food distribution ministry who have even called and said, I actually don't need any food, but could I just come in and like hang out? Could I just talk? And, and when people are doing that, they know that they're gonna be received well. Something's been communicated to them, whether verbally or non-verbally, that they're not on the outside, that they're not, not allowed in the church, that they don't even actually have to need the food to come and hang out, which I know is a radical thought, but, but there's stuff like that, right? There's people that have done an incredible job of that. So that's number four. Number five, as we finish off, this is a little bit tougher one, maybe. Not that you didn't think the first four were tough. But Jesus offered love and forgiveness to everyone he encountered, even those who persecuted him and put him to death. We're, we're in a, a month right now uh, of celebrating something. I don't need to go and tell you specifically because I think you already know, but the big slogan that's been thrown out there, right, which is complete propaganda, is this idea, it says, love is love, okay? Love is love. Well, what the heck does that mean, right? And I can tell you at least what it, it means to our culture, but I'll tell you that that's not actual love, that, that, is, that is not love is love. However that's intended, I'll tell you that it's not love, not biblical love, not Jesus-centric, modeling Jesus type of love. Loving someone, what loving someone doesn't mean, it, is, it doesn't mean rubber stamping everything they want to do and condoning their behavior. That's not love. What that actually is, when, when you say you love somebody, but you just condone whatever they want to do and say you do you or you like rubber stamp it, yeah, whatever, go ahead. You know what that is? That's lazy. It's actually apathy. And a lot of it's psychologists will tell you, or some people believe this in psychology, that the opposite of love is not hate, it's actually disinterest or apathy. So we're not talking about some sort of weird love where like you love everybody that comes to you in some sort of like, oh, I love you. And yeah, you can do whatever you want. That's fine. That's not really love. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone that you're in relationship with is to oppose to restrict, 
right? That's called parenting. Yeah. See how, see how a, a kid does when a parent just rubber stamps and condones everything the kid does. First of all, it's a massive recipe for them to have mental health issues because they need boundaries. It's a whole other aside. But anyway, the most loving thing you can do is to oppose, to restrict, sometimes to expose darkness via light. Now, you don't need to do this like a jerk because remember the whole earlier thing about gentle and humble in heart, right, and a friend of people? But Jesus offered genuine love, love that at times he, had, he risked relationships. You ever had to do that where you love someone so much, but they're so like oppressed or trapped in the situation and you know the only way is to risk the friendship by telling them hard things? That's an, if you actually do that and go to them and say, I love you, but man, you're killing yourself or whatever, you are, that's love. That's humility. That's you saying they're more important even than our friendship. And I'm willing to risk that. Matthew 5, 43 through 48 says it like this. Jesus is making this massive statement here. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans who don't know God do that? But be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect actually is better translated as holy, which means to be set apart. So be set apart, be different, <laughs> as your Father is different. Be part of this upside-down kingdom. The old commandment, on a, as we kind of close here, the old commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard that one, right? Okay. Some people think that's a good one. There's just one massive problem with it. Well, two massive problems. One is it's actually outdated and Jesus, revert, Jesus changed it. So we, that's not the one we live by anymore. But two, if you do adhere to it, a lot of us don't love ourselves so well. So what you do is you end up treating people just like you do treat yourself, which is terrible. You don't love yourself. There's all kinds of things. You're your own worst critic. You can't believe you did X, Y, and Z. You have no forgiveness for yourself for these things you've done. And then you'd end up treating other people the same, right? So you are loving people. You are obeying the commandment, but it's not really great, right? Jesus knew this. So he actually, and a lot of people don't know that he did this, but he completely flips it. He gives us a new command and he actually says, in light of this, a new command I give you. John 13, 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. That's the old part. As I have loved you. So you must love one another. Now that's a whole different ballgame. Loving your neighbor as yourself, that's not always that hard. Loving others as he has loved us whole different ballgame. You're going to need the Holy Spirit for that one. <laughs> right? And you're going to need an understanding also of how much he's loved you. This is to bring this thing full circle. This is the command that John is referring to 
in the verses I read earlier where he says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. He's not talking about the 613 Old Testament commands. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about Levitical law. He's not talking about any of that stuff. What he's talking about is this, this command. Love one another as I have loved you, so love one another. To sum everything up, what this text is saying, we've read today. Thank you for your, your patience this morning. What this text is saying is that the person who loves Jesus like they should is no longer living for themselves. Do we have the slide for this? What this text is saying is that the person who loves Jesus like they should is no longer living for themselves. They have abandoned themselves. They are living for him and him alone. They're not pursuing meaningless temporal things which occupy the time of the lost around us. Instead, they're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Being like Jesus means you'll have to love your enemies, to forgive those who betray you, to return kindness for evil, and to pray for those who treat you like you don't matter. It means that you will live with one purpose and one purpose alone, to accomplish God's will and not your own. Those who say they live in him must live as Jesus did. How did he live? He emptied himself. He became filled with the Holy Spirit and in relationship with the Father. Became gentle and humble in heart, which led him to two significant places. One, to become a friend to those who were friendless. And to love his enemies. But even as he was on the cross, could barely say anything in his weakness. One of the things that he mustered up was, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they do. If you want to live, you say that you live in Jesus. Go and live as Jesus did, but you can't do it on your own. Allow yourself to be emptied and then filled up. It's the most beautiful life there is. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for not just your gift of your life, not just the sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection, but also the example that you set. God, may we follow. May this church follow. May we be emptied out and filled up. May we be gentle and humble in heart. May we be a friend to the friendless and may, may we forgive as we've been forgiven. Jesus, let us leave this place today different than when we walked in. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much for your patience. Have a great rest of the day, and we will see you here next Sunday morning for week four of Love and Light.